This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Twilight. Helen, what did you think of Twilight? Well, I thought it was shit, Benjamin. So <laughs> thanks for putting us through this. Um, we're also doing the theme, Anamoya. Is that how we pronounce it? Because it's not a th- it's not it's not a term I was familiar with. So I'm sort of riffing. Yeah, I've got some ideas, but I could be wrong about what it means. But I did a bit of googling, so hopefully I'm all right. So um, I actually had an experience of what I think Anamoya is this weekend, when somebody who was a fellow disciple of Tammy Faye Baker sent me some of Tammy Faye's jewelry. This is her Flintstone set. It is actually like, uh, like you know, cavemen spear-shaped oh. rocks. And I have such a crazy fascination with this woman. I think she's like <laughs> a Jesus for that era. Uh, a mistaken, obviously very flawed, but everyone's flawed, including Jesus. Um, and I won't go into that there, but I'm a massive fan of her. But but, but wear, wearing this jewelry, you know, or getting scented, it really took me into this little portal, this nostalgic experience for the kitschness of the 80s. And um, I also got a got sent one of her handwritten letters and uh, got a real flavour of her spirit and the era in which she lived. I was thinking about uh, when we make films, often we make films inspired by reality or about reality, telling stories about things that have happened or things we imagine might have happened or we would like to have happened or we think will be a good vehicle to convey some ideas. And so we become very nosy about other things. I think I'm quite a nosy person. And I think maybe nosiness is related to this term of anamoya, um, looking into a time or a moment that we were never a part of, but that speaks to us in some way. So, yeah, and I also think it's interesting um, when we reflect on ourselves, what kind of things or stories or people we are interested in. And often our interest can happen at a faster pace than our conscious realization of why. So it can always be interesting. Like, I think when we talked about the films that we've picked, that the films maybe say something about us. So you were thinking, Benjamin, about this theme of animal in relation to Twilight. You sort of have a theory of Twilight. Um, so I'm interested in why you think, you know, what, what, what you think it's doing. But this is sort of this mythology with this vampire world of Twilight and mythology within the contemporary world. So it's like a nostalgia for an alternative reality, potentially, um, or a longing for a, 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 a reality we wished was the case or was the world, but our world is chaotic, divided and a bit shit, but that's what makes it good. And what makes it productive in the first place. But so I wanted to talk a little bit about the filmmaking because I just can't help myself. And it also ties a little bit to the theme. So, you know, it's it's very poor. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't finish it. I was literally like five minutes. I'll do it five minutes of time. So it's it's very expositional. And obviously this is this is leaded because it's um a whole kind of universe being like a, sto- a, a world building happening within this first film. But there were these bits where Edward is sort of just, is he called Edward? Ed, Ed, yeah, Edward is, is um, telling Bella about his reality and his history and, you know, the lore of the vampires. And they put a bit of like late eight, late noughties indie rock music behind it to try and give it some pace. It's definitely not a story, you know, we're not involved in this sort of lacking narrative that the lack pushes the narrative forward. It's just sort of told to us. It's very, very strange. 
Um, and it really made me want to be like there on set to like maybe have an anamoyic experience in terms of being, because I'd love to see like, were they laughing at this? Were they in on the joke? Um, how did it look in the edit room? You know, how did, what did the rushes look like? How did they form this? What was the rough cut? Like, it just is also weird to me. It's just kind of like, yeah, weird as in it's, 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 there's something extra there. There's something like odd and extra. So maybe I'm a little bit like, I wish I could go back to 2007 when they were filming this. Interestingly, um, Robert Pattinson wrote some of the score. There's a bit of him playing the piano, but that was his track, I think. So talented guy, potentially. Um, yeah, and the film doesn't actually start until one, one hour 26. That's when like literally the inciting incident happens. So there's a lot of other things going on, I think, that draw people in. And that is that it's highly sexual. You know, it's highly, highly erotic in a sense that it is, um, this is the, like an, uh, a clear example of the hysterical, hysterics mode of desire. Um, to be the object A, to be that which incites desire and this, this you know, desire to be kind of saved or, um, you know, that there's a, well, the hysteric and the hysteric distorse is an interesting one. It's always looking for a master, but, you know, as Jack Lacan said at 68, you're looking for a master and you will have one, but it's just sort of this endless search. And then in the sexual sense, often, you know, it's to do with being saved or, you know, taken care of or whatever. And so it's very, very, it's not like um, pornographic, but it really, really, like follows the path so neatly of a hysterics mode of desire that I can see why a lot of women or a lot of people, because they're male hysterics as well, are really into watching it. Um, it's also, aside from the sexual fantasy element, really um, part of a neurotic fantasy. So a normal person, you know, who, who actually has this magical uniqueness, they are going to save the world. The psychotic actually thinks this about themselves literally. But um, a neurotic has, you know, it's more of a, operates as a fantasy. So, you know, you're the exception. Slightly different from the um, perverse subject. One rule for thee, one rule for me. So you see perverse, perverse kind of um, dynamics and things like judges or teachers sometimes and things like that, or, you know, prison guards and stuff. But this is, you know, the Harry Potter as well. This is a very common um, theme, especially in young adults literature where they're sort of finding their place in the world, but this fantasy that, you know, you're just a normal person, but, you know, the most godly Adonis wants to be with you and you actually have this magical uniqueness that, you know, is, is, is really individual. Um, I guess the other thing about this film that I, is, is interesting whenever we talk about vampires and zombies, you know, half living, half dead, it's quite similar to human desire. Uh, humans are humans divided at the level of subjectivity, but you know, our, our desire is even more, or our sexual desire, our drive is even more distorted than just being a speaking subject or a, a divided subject at the level of subjectivity. So, you know, we have, um, well, I won't go into drive because we've done this so many times in different episodes, but the birth of the world is the death of the world. You know, once we're bitten by language, we enter into this division and part of this division is this sort of sexual element as well. We are vampires when we suck the lifeblood out of the good. That's another thing, exiting the vampire castle. Lots to talk about there about the contemporary left. Um, you know, and in a way, I think our problem today is that we, I think the most, the, one of the key, most key passages that we can turn to is in Marx's introduction to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right, where he talks about the, you know, religion as the opium of the people. And I think we misrecognize where the opium is. 
And right now we are drunk on the opium. We refuse to see the uh, the chains and we refuse to pick the living flower. There is a living flower. I think there is. Uh, But it takes reason and it takes clarity and it takes really being brave on it. Um, Diagnosing where the opium lies so that we can then see the chains or the, you know, the the chains on the, the flowers on the chains so we can take off the chains and pick the living flower. So to be alive, the birth of the world is the death of the world is to accept our ambivalence at the level of our subjectivity. This is to recognize that we're condemned to be free and to acknowledge that we are the ticks and grimaces of the universe. So the, our condemned to be free, our freedom is in recognizing we are the contingent gristle, the working out of the contradiction of the universe at the level of, and we, we experience this at the level of our subjectivity. You know, it's interesting as well, you know, Edwards accepts that he is a killer. He's the most dangerous predator in the world. I mean, I guess there's a there's an element of truth to that, you know, with humans as well. Um, I don't think that's not necessarily true. Obviously, we we destroy, but we also create. Um, but I think that part of the um, challenge of being an adult human is to accept this contradiction, the dark and the light, and all the other things that exist at the level of our, you know, that we experience at the level of our own subjectivity. And often we want to deny or different psychic structures make us handle things in different ways, but we want to deny this division and project it, the division out onto the other scapegoat, the other, turn that contradiction into opponents so we can rid the world of the opponent. But the opponent is actually always necessary to sustain the fantasy that a world of wholeness and completeness exists. But maybe the step that we can take to get beyond that whole horrible dynamic of enemy making and cancelling people is to accept contradiction at the level of everything in the world, at the level of our own subjectivity, which is kind of uncomfortable because we have to have it in our heads all the time. But this subject, this contradiction is the most powerful, creative and positive force in the universe. All right. Nina, you're up. <sighs> right. Twilight. Um, I suppose if, if I felt any of this nostalgia for somewhere I've never experienced, it would have been for the forests in the film, which are very beautiful. Um but other than that, well, I, I, yes, I must, I must admit, I, I started watching it about halfway through on one point five speed just to get it over with, which, <laughs> which made the, um, the jumping bits even funnier because, <laughs> you know, when he does these little fast movements, they were even, even faster, um, and it sort of added a layer of, uh, of, 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 of even more absurdity to it. But um, I must admit, my reaction to this, this film, it reminds me of other films from when I was a teenager, first among them would be Edward Scissorhands, which is also about the impossibility of desire, which is to say that, you know, this this creature that cannot have sex with also very similar looking, you know, young, pale, uh, white, uh, Winona Ryder is very similar kind of character. Um, and the kind of impossibility of that desire because the, 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 the actual sexual relation will um, cause harm. Um, it's a very similar theme. There's also interview of the vampire. Um, there's something very, very. Um, I'm going to put my feminist auntie hat on here. Um, very, very dodgy about these films in the sense that they um, are clearly designed for teenage girls in many ways. Um, not only teenage girls, but in a sense, they are seemingly they're very, very female oriented. Films and they're also very female directed and written films as well. Actually, um, they're clearly tapping into something which is being encouraged by this film, which I would describe as something like female masochism, which is partly to do with I think 
particularly for teenage girls, a kind of inability or a lack of desire which is inculcated and reinforced precisely by these kinds of narratives, which is to do with not accepting or not wanting to accept, because it is very difficult to accept, your own participation in sexual desire. And so this becomes instead, I would say, something like a a passivity, almost to the point of death. And Bella in this film is the deer. You know, this is her symbol that's repeated throughout the beginning and middle and end. She's this vulnerable, you know, prey, basically. But she says repeatedly about her desire is to die in the place of someone I love. Right. So up until the point of death is her desire lies close to this um, desire for pure submission in the most extreme sense. And those things, those two things are linked for her. So sex and death are basically the same thing, right? In the sense that it's a very opposite of anything like a kind of autonomous or active sexuality that would be something like a, a kind of, you know, equal participation in, I don't know, adult relations. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's something like um, an acceptance of a certain, like, heterosexual fate which involves a particular image of female passivity um, in exchange for something like the protection which is offered by this kind of James Dean looking vampire um, and I think this this message somehow is 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 very common and and it was common in the teenage films of the films that teenagers loved when I was younger you know in the 90s and you know where And I remember thinking like, oh, that's great. I don't want to be a sexual being. It would be great if someone else could make the decision for me, right? And and who who better to make the decision for you than some sort of half dead, half alive monster who happens to be really good looking, you know? (laughs) So the vampire is like this weird, in particular, is this kind of creature of, let's say, unlimited desire who can do all the desiring for you, if you like. Um, so that you don't have to take responsibility for your own desire. And I think this is the kind of message of this film, that in a way, female desire is ultimately masochistic, close to death, um, and that this is how it how it ought to be. Like, this is a good thing. And this is what you swap in in return for male protection. Um, and, and actually, in, in a certain way, there is a truthfulness to that, which is to say, if you accept male protection you know on some level that this man could also kill you, right? Which is, in a way, the heterosexual compact because most men are stronger than most women. So, you know, in exchange, this is not, this is a kind of brutal feminist point, but it also has some truth, right? So in exchange for the protection of one man against other men, you accept that, in principle, this man can also hurt you because it's the same power that he uses to protect you against hypothetical other men that he could also wield against you. Right. So you are protected, but by the same force, if you see what I mean. Right. This is bleak, what I'm saying. Right. But these films do make it kind of explicit in a certain sense. And I was talking to someone just finally this week about female masochism unrelated to this film, actually. And the way in which female masochism can ultimately also be wielded as a form of female sadism, because what happens in this kind of embrace of um, pure passivity is also an inability to say to a man, like, I don't want to be with you, right? So that you end up in this horrible situation where women are accidentally um, leading men on, right? Because they're not able to say, they, they lack the courage to assert their own desire and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm just not interested in you that way. 
right? It takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, and a lot of women would rather somehow mm, avoid or sidestep that problem by um, accidentally, I think in most cases, stringing men along by refusing to outright say, I'm not interested in you, or I have a boyfriend, or, you know, I assert my right not to desire you. Um, and I think there's so that female passivity ends up becoming a form of accidental or incidental female sadism. Right. And this is, this is very, very brutal. And I don't know quite how, how we might circumnavigate this, but I don't think that films like Twilight are in any way the answer. And I think they, they encourage like quite bad ideas in, in teenage girls that tap into something that's already there and they know that that's what they're doing. Right. Hmm. All right. I'm up. So the first time I saw Twilight was a few weeks ago. My dad was declining. He died on August 14th. As a distraction, my girlfriend proposed that we watch these films. She's a Zoomer. She was born in 1997. When she was a teenager, all the girls were reading these books and watching these films. Why were girls so interested in this stuff? Yes, teenage girls like romances with hot people in them, but why these romances? They were really big. This is the challenge. So I watched all the films. Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn, parts one and two. I haven't read the books, but I think I know the answer, and it's Animoya. So Animoya is a specific type of nostalgia, a nostalgia for a time you've never known. Robert Pattinson's vampire, Edward, is 108 years old. He was an adult when he became a vampire in 1917. He therefore lives by a set of values and norms which come not from the 80s or the 50s or even the 30s, but from a time before that. His family is wealthy. He has the bearing of an aristocrat from before the sexual revolution. He heavily regulates his desires and manners. He refrains from drinking human blood for moral reasons. He feeds on animals, even though their blood is less satisfying. This creates a dynamic in which it is Bella, not Edward, who pushes for premarital sex. Edward feels premarital sex is wrong, and he fears hurting her. Bella is also the one who wants to be bitten, the one who wants to be a vampire. Edward thinks vampires are an abomination. He does not want to destroy Bella's soul by turning her into a monster. Bella's relationship with Edward is, of course, contrasted with her relationship with the werewolf, Jacob. Jacob is Bella's age. He only recently became a werewolf. He's conventionally masculine in a pushy, unrestrained way. Jacob gets angry when Bella resists his advances. He gives her kisses she doesn't want, and she punches him in the face. He constantly compares himself to Edward, boasting about how warm his body is, how there's real blood pumping through his veins. The rejection of Jacob in favor of Edward is never complete or total. Jacob remains Bella's friend throughout the films, but he just cannot compete with Edward, with the traditions which Edward represents. The superficial critique of these movies is that they're conservative. Edward is a vampire, but that's okay because he conducts himself as a Christian. The films launder Christian ideas through a satanic vamp aesthetic. They look gritty and gray and morally complicated, but they're propaganda for Victorian values. But there's a more interesting question. Why were Zoomer girls fixated on Christian masculinity? 
it's not as if these Zoomer teens were religious types. Statistically, Zoomers are even less likely to go to church than millennials. I think it's because of Edward's restraint. Because Edward does not pursue Bella, Bella is free to pursue him. She can explore and express her sexuality because Edward will resist it. Jacob takes such expressions as invitations. Because Jacob will advance on her if she expresses her desires, Bella has to hide them from him. Zoomer girls are tired of having this kind of relationship with boys their own age. But Zoomer girls are not Victorian women. They want to be free to express their sexuality, but they only feel free to express themselves when the men are restrained. In other words, they want to have the sexual revolution without extending it to the men. It's a strange kind of hybrid gender politics where women are sexually progressive while men are so conservative they feel otherworldly. Is there anything wrong with that? I don't think it is a problem in itself. The trouble is that only some of the Zoomer girls want Edward. The girls on Team Jacob like the more contemporary, aggressive kind of masculinity, which Jacob represents. This means that if you're a boy, you're being asked by different girls to go in radically different directions. Sometimes you're supposed to be the restrained, aristocratic vampire, and other times you're supposed to be the aggressive, proletarian werewolf. And because the girls on Team Edward don't feel free to express their sexuality until they're sure you won't try to take advantage, it's hard to figure out who is on which team. The problem isn't that any particular set of romantic norms is wrong or too conservative or too progressive. It's that in the past century, all these sets of norms are breaking down. As they break down, it becomes harder and harder to know what other people want, harder and harder to know what's polite and what's rude. I think Twilight was big because at the time, a lot of people weren't aware that there was a Team Edward. Jacob, played by Taylor Lautner, looks like every hot guy from the early 2000s. He's tan, he has abs, he rides motorcycles, and he gets in fights. Edward is pale and lanky. He wouldn't have been considered conventionally attractive in 2002. The Twilight films helped these girls articulate what they wanted and gave boys another kind of masculinity to project. As a pale, lanky guy with a pompadour, I can't be mad about it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, you do remind me of the idea of like transitional kind of sexual objects. So, you know, this idea that kind of um, teenage female desire basically often goes from kind of horses to boy bands who are very feminine you know, then to like real men, right? So you have this kind of trajectory of sort of increasingly safe, but slightly wild things. So the horse is, is, is often there. <laughs> you must have known horsey girls who had just posters of horses everywhere in this kind of, you know, very weird way. And I, I never liked horses. I thought they were too, fr I mean, I admired horses actually, because they're very frightening in a way, but they're kind of amazing. But I never had that kind of transitional relation to them and um but yeah and then the boy band who are usually very pretty like aha or something you know the the man from aha was very beautiful in this feminine way he's like the prototype and then i guess you have like you know we had to take that and um i don't know like now you have k-pop or something i don't know so i'm so old i sound i sound <laughs> very old now don't i um <laughs> but the but the overriding affect of these sorts of boys is that they're safe they're sexually safe and and i think that's maybe what you know, is Edward is paradoxically, uh, even though he's this kind of violent murderer, <laughs> he's sexually safe somehow. Yeah, there is there is the sort of like the care and attention. It's interesting because 
you know, a sex, everything is ambivalent, but sexuality is ambivalent as well. So, you know, you can have, we have like a clear kind of picture of what turns us on, for example, but in terms of like desire and what kind of hooks our desire. So you have that element of this restrained aristocratic vampire. I think about as well how vampires, I guess, are always, you know, in, in sort of like a symbolic sense, these sort of restrained, I don't know if restrained is the word, but aristocratic or superior, you know, um, the 2013 film um, Only Lovers Left Alive, you know, there's a sort of, there's mm. a sort of smugness you know, to the vampire, um, a superiority. Um, but so, so in a way, you know, and in terms of like the, the love story narrative, in terms of like narrative writing or screenwriting or whatever, you know, you have to have sort of an absence or an obstacle to incite desire. And obviously there's the obstacle of like, oh, it's too dangerous. But also, you know, he's, she, she, she thinks he's repulsed by her at the beginning. And it's often, you know, it's a, we want what we can't have. And, you know, that, that lack of interest that does incite desire. But then on another, on another level or another aspect of her desire, this, this idea of being taken care of is something that a lot of people find extremely sexual. And so, yeah, at once when the sexuality is quite violent or, you know, energetic or kind of out there, there are all these different dimensions to it. And that he, he, he embodies both danger and care at the same time. Yeah, in almost all of these films, there's something that Edward is refusing to do that Bella is trying to get him to do. <laughs> so in the first film, it's just to pay attention to her or to interact with her at all. Uh, and then in the second film, Edward runs away for the whole film because he thinks he is a, a danger to her. And this causes her to get to know Jacob the werewolf, who you meet briefly in the first film. Uh, and of course, by the second film, he's got muscles and he's more mature and all of that, right? And then in the third <laughs> film, in the third film, she's trying to get him to have sex with her and he's refusing to do that until so they So do they not married. have sex until the third film? They don't have sex until, until the, fourth the fourth film. film. That is after a lot the, of foreplay. After the wedding. Well, what do you call it? A lot of tease, you know. <laughs> wow. Well, and, and, then, and then even when they have sex, he's trying not to hurt her, but of course he does. And then the whole plot of the fourth film is that, uh, spoiler alert, uh, is that she gets impregnated by the sexual act. And then she has this half vampire, half human oh, fetus. A muggle. And the, Not a muggle. the fetus is, is too powerful because it's a vampire. So if it gets upset, it could potentially snap her spine. Oh my God. That's horrific. movements. <laughs> yes, it's get, it gets really, no, this is it gets so really dark so, in the fourth film. Yeah, this, plays into, this plays into so many people's sexual fantasies. It's hilarious. By the way, as well, to go back to what you were saying, Nina, you know, we had this like an episode a while ago where it was like, could a woman have made this film? And it was like, yes, like mm. you're right, it's all women creative team. And this is absolute tosh, you know. <laughs> so. well, and then, let me tell you what happens with the fetus. So Sorry. after it's revealed that she's pregnant, right, both Edward and Jacob think that she should get it aborted. Edward thinks so because he doesn't think it's alive because he thinks it's a vampire and vampires have no souls. So even though Edward would ordinarily be anti-abortion, he doesn't view it as a human life, right? And Jacob thinks it's, it's a monster because he's a werewolf and they have a natural antagonism toward vampires, right? So you have this scene where they're trying to persuade her to abort the fetus and she's declining to abort it. She refuses to abort it because she's convinced that it is uh, a baby, right? And so the, the 
werewolf, uh, Jacob, you know, Edward brings him in because he thinks maybe he can persuade her because Edward has failed. So he brings Jacob in to talk to her. And the, 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 there's an amazing scene where the werewolf, Jacob, starts and he's like smiling. And he's like, so, Bella, I hear that you have this baby. What's up with that? You, you want to keep it? That's interesting. And then, of course, uh, you know, she says, yeah, I want to keep it. I think it's alive. And within about 30 seconds, his mood just turns and he goes, it's a monster, Bella. What's wrong with you? And he just the, the whole shtick with the werewolf is that every scene he's nice for like 30 seconds <laughs> and then he gets pissed about something and yells all kinds of abuse at everybody. And this is just kind of you know, taken as normal. It's what you get when you have Jacob the werewolf. Mm. Right. You just have this guy who's who's full of anger all the time. Uh, it's uh, it's fascinating, fascinating. You know, we were talking last week about um, the, the illusion, the patter of poeticism that can lend an appearance of transcendence and connected connection to essence. And I think there's something about this sort of mysterious, tormented soul. And this could be, you know, women and man both, I think. But, you know, it, it maybe maybe in terms of literature, the history of literature, you know, the, the man, I don't know, because women are maybe have been the pursuees in most historical literature, or maybe not, I don't know. Anyway, but they, they you know, this sort of tormented soul uh, indicates a kind of greater wisdom or, you know, the world is a bit shit, obviously, but like, doesn't mean that uh, being a nihilist or being depressed gives you any greater purchase on like the truth of reality or whatever. But there is this sort of like weird poeticism of torment. And this this guy knows something. They have a truth. They know something that everyone else doesn't know, you know. Nah. Yeah, but isn't that located in Bella? You know, like he's like, I can't get a read on you. Everyone else is interested in money sex and money and sex and you know you're so mysterious yeah. i mean it's like again it's like this fancy of the yeah the normal girl the normal but slightly prettier girl you know who has something mysterious that she doesn't even know it's, it's like her hidden kernel you know and and i think this i i once when i was very high i came up with this idea that you know what women want is a poem that this is this is the one thing that every woman wants is a poem that perfectly captures her you know, and all these films are like that. They're like, you know, I want someone to identify this special thing or this thing that makes me special that I don't even know what it is. Like, what is this thing that differentiates me from all these other women? <laughs> it's revealed that she's a shield. She is able to block other vampires' powers. And in the final film, she learns to project the shield so she can actually be the one who defends other people. It's exactly the same so as Harry she Potter. Saves Edward by projecting the shield over him. What's the Harry oh, Potter spell so where he does the thing and they like get rid of the Death Eaters? It's exactly the fucking same. I mean, obviously, all you know, there are seven stories or whatever that jazz is. Do you do you think every culture gets the stories it deserves? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Oh my god! Well, we we absolutely have um, because because this. Um, Precarity-inducing, um, sameness-inducing, evening out, daisy-chopping thing that is capitalism has entered into every sphere, including subjectivity. I think subjectivity was sold out to capital with the expanse of like fake therapy, as well as sex in the sixties. Uh, state has been, you know, has sold themselves off to capital. It is so hard 
to create good work. I mean, it's always been difficult because of the imperative of money, but you know, there was patronage and all these different things, and perhaps maybe an appetite for good stuff. And sometimes good stuff came from people who had the means not to work, for instance. Um, but we are in an age where it, it is almost, and definitely as a maker, you you almost, it's like jaw on the floor, the good stuff versus the stuff that is, say, distributed in the field that I'm in. And it's like, it's patently not good. And there is plenty of good stuff that people want to make, but obviously resources. I mean, I'm sort of thinking that maybe there's just going to be a dual economy where you have corporate stuff and people just make stuff that like very, very little, which is, mm -hmm. but then who gets to see it, you know, and does it even exist if you have the millions to, to, to foist things before people's eyes? So is this reflective of the art that's getting made? Um, it's reflective of a section of art that is made and um, presented to us. But um, yeah. I, th I think to some degree, this reflects a little bit of the teenage girl's frustration with capitalism because she grows up in a kind of middle-class home. Her father is a police officer, right? I think he's the police chief for the town. and. You have the werewolf is a Native American, so he's an indigenous person who's very embedded in a kind of tribal culture, right? And then the werewolf, uh, the, the vampire, is this aristocratic kind of old-time mm -hmm. European figure. But both of the objects of her interest are not conventionally middle-class, capitalist, professional-class, good-job kinds of boys. One of them runs around without a shirt with his wolf buddies on the reservation, and the other one is uh, a, a quasi-European sort mm -hmm. of fellow who wouldn't fit in anywhere, really, and, and hardly fits in in that school, right? Yeah, that's Hello. a very so good I, reading. I, yeah. So there is, I think, a certain frustration with capitalism that is embedded in this film. Uh, even though, of course, the films have been used to sell an enormous amount of crap, but that—that's—that's that's par for the course. Yeah. That anti-capitalist sentiments are sold back. Absolutely, because this is the right-wing deviation of the left, you know. And this is the trouble. It's like the aesthetics of the left are not enough. The left is an understanding, is a philosophical understanding of the nature of subjectivity, of the nature of the market, and of the nature and, and how subjectivity and the market are related. And so, yes, we can we can be, but but the sentiment of frustration is perfect. Uh, as a as a let's say an audience to sell a solution to the frustration, which is you know a temporary escape, or that there's a, let's say an essence to one group or an essence to another group that can be purchased or that can be attained and that can fill the gap of lack. But yeah, I think this is a like that's a really good reading and it's a prime example of how you can marketize even a critique of capitalism. Yeah, because there is a third boy. The third boy is just one of the boys at school, yeah. and every. Every time he gets a chance, and he eventually fades out of the story, but for the first two or three movies, every time there's a moment where Bella isn't attached to somebody, he makes a move and tries to get her to date him. And every time she's just completely disinterested in him. And he's just another middle class boy from the town. And there's nothing really uh, distinct or different about is, him. Is, is there ever a, a kind of like girl on girl aspect to this? Because, you know, some of the female vampires are kind of hot, you know. I'd be surprised if there wasn't a moment where they sort of tried it on with Bella, right? Well, the the author is a Mormon, and so I think yeah. uh, and these books came out early enough that I think 
That's another thing about this. There's very little woke stuff Mm. in these films. Indeed, the author resisted an attempt to diversify the casting of the films on the grounds that she did envision these vampires as extremely pale. And therefore, she insisted that all of the most significant vampires be played by white actors. Uh, The one exception is Laurent, the black uh, vampire who's in the the troop of three that show up near the end of this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the most part, she really, really resisted casting vampires as anything other than white. Uh, This film was shot, would have been shot in 2007, I'm guessing. So it's pre-crisis, pre-the turn of um, extreme precarity, extreme blindness to the issues and not a solution, but a way of lessening the blow of these issues. Very simple. You know, find ways to tax corporations and don't bail them out. Um, But... uh, but but you know so the solution of um, enemy making as a as a as a sort of salve wasn't there quite yet and the sort of um, I really see identity politics as 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 within the realm of the imaginary so you have the real the imaginary and the symbolic and the the cure in psychoanalysis the talking cure is to al- alphabet alphabetize to to sort of ration, non rationally rationalize but to come to this point where you where you are churning and digesting and able to um, understand in the symbolic order, so the symbolic order of like rational language where things are sort of concretized and made real. And the, so I think in terms of capitalism, it's very obvious if you have a good reading of capitalism, what the issues are and how racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, comes about. It's very, very obvious. But we get trapped in this easy imaginary realm, which is this uh, at the level of aesthetics, at the level of sentiment, feeling, um, at the level of um, image, the imaginary, and obviously we can identify different racial groups or whatever, which is sort of a bit of a a decoy, even though racism and all these things exist and exist because that imaginary was um, we didn't enter into the symbolic at a different time. But basically, I feel like well, this is this is pre two thousand and eight, but we are really within this imaginary. Politically, and we're not political, I don't think, until we can get into the symbolic. I, that was a little detour that was really pointless, I think. But anyway. <laughs> but a lot of the later films, of course, were filmed after mm-hmm. 2008 because they started with, with Twilight. But I don't think the second Breaking Dawn came out until something like 2011, 2012. So it, the, the films really span that whole first Obama term. And that, that gritty, gritty uh, that gritty vibe, it, everything of that period had that. Just trying to think. Breaking Bad had yeah. that. Game of Thrones, of course, launched in 2011 and was kind of the last of that. And I, I think there was, in the post-9-11 and especially post-2008 world, a kind of attempt to wrestle with moral gray areas. And I think one of the things that's interesting about these films is how often there are major value decisions. There are major questions that have to be answered, where decisions have to be taken. Uh, you know, do you stay immortal or become a vampire? Do you keep the baby or do you abort it? 
we do have some some questions of value that get asked in these films. Mm-hmm. And looking at the popular cinema of the last few years, there are hardly ever any questions of value asked mm-hmm. where characters that are considered good or admirable disagree about those questions. And in these films, the, the disagreement about what to do with the baby in, in Breaking Dawn Part One, where all of your protagonists have very shockingly different views. And they just have an, have an argument about whether to abort this baby in a film. Uh, or, you know, a real proper argument about it. Yeah. Am, I, am I crazy or is that much deeper than anything that's been in a popular movie in several years? <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't go so far as to say deep. <laughs> but, but I haven't seen the other, any of the other films except for this first one. Um, but yeah, no, there, there is a, there is a um, uh, what would you call a, a, a sense of givens. You know, if you're this person, you think this. If you're this person, you're reprehensible. If you're this person, you represent this group and you think that. If this person is, says this, then they're cancellable. You know, so there, there is very much um, an erasure of nuance at, at an understanding of messiness and division at the level of everybody and an attempt to project oneness and satisfying categories on the world um, in a way that I think speaks to the anxiety and precarity of the political and economic situation. But I think you're right. We, we have less debate than we used to. Another thing, the way that they get to oneness here, the, the vampires and the werewolves have this natural dislike for mm-hmm. one another because the, the werewolves spawn to defend the tribes from the vampires. That's their reason for being. And they smell terrible to the vampires and all of this. But by the end of the films, the vampires and the werewolves come together over the shared desire of Jacob and Edward to protect Bella. And by the end of the film, the, the vampire's family has got the werewolves uh, on its side. And it, it begins with a kind of split in the werewolves where uh, the, the, uh, the werewolves decide, some of the werewolves want to defend Bella and others think that Bella is a problem because she's impregnated with this baby. Uh, and the, eventually the, the werewolf imprints on the fetus. So because he imprints on the fetus, he kind of falls permanently in love with the fetus that has only just been, you know, with the newborn fetus to the point where he's, he's kind of got this obsessive fixation on the fetus and has to defend the newborn, right? So the werewolf who has been calling for the abortion of the fetus, after, as soon as the, the baby is born, develops this obsession with protecting it. And the other werewolves view this imprinting as a fundamental part of who they are. And they, they re- always respect it. If a werewolf is imprinted on someone, then they never touch or harm that person, right? So because Jacob imprints on Bella's newborn, all of the werewolves now will not touch Bella's newborn. And they're compelled to defend the newborn because a member of their pack has imprinted. So from that point forward, the werewolves and the vampires have to work together. And so you have these indigenous people protecting these extremely pale, vaguely European vampires. Do you know, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I just, I'm just sort of wondering how much protection one, one woman needs, for goodness sake. But um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it, I think that the werewolf-vampire distinction is interesting. I mean, obviously Marx uses vampires as a metaphor for capital, famously, and, you know, the kind of parasitic nature of, uh, capital is vampiric and you know and I and but but at this very sort of um I don't know almost like 
uh, faintly psychoanalytically framed decision. It's like, if you're a woman, would you rather a vampire or a werewolf? You know, what would you say, Helen? Um, vampire, vampire. See, I would. Why? Um, maybe I consider. I don't. I would have to think about that. I don't know if I have a, like a good quickie thing right now. <laughs> maybe it's because I mean Robert Pattinson is quite. You know, he. You say he's not attractive for two thousand two. He was Cedric Diggory in the early. You know, in the early. Naughty. So yeah, I, 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 think know, I think he was attractive. I, I think he. But was maybe it's just his beauty, his aesthetically aesthetic pleasantness transcends trend. You know. Mm. See, I would I would choose a wolf. You see, but that's just because I like wolves a lot, and I would like to be in the forest. And but it's like Zizek talks about ages ago. You know, this idea they did they, they ran this survey about whether people would rather have sex with a monkey or a robot. Or an, an ape or a robot, oh um, <laughs> and and can you can you guess how this divided? Well, along? I mean, like robot sexed, right? You'd say robot, Benjamin. Would you say robot or ape? Ah, uh, oof! Oh, that's very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really thought about that no. at any point in my Plenty life. Plenty of people Why have sex you? with robots already. Yeah. I mean, allegedly, this this divides. I mean, not completely cleanly, but apparently, women tend to say monkey and men tend to say robot. You and it's what? supposed to reveal something about. <laughs> it's supposed <laughs> to reveal something. I can't remember what it is, but I, I definitely, I, I think personally, I, you know, probably because I'm into the wild and pagan things. It's it's like something that's alive. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not interested in things that are dead. It's like. You know, no, but like I wouldn't, is... I wouldn't want to have a, wouldn't be friends with a with a or have a relationship with a robot. But I definitely couldn't go through with having sex with an ape. But I think, but this is inter- it's interesting <laughs> because it, it, it's about whether sex is instrumental or not, and it's about your anyone's not you, but anyone's relationship to intimacy, right? So, is mm-hmm. intimacy a connection with a living thing, right? Or is it uh, an instrumental act? But the thing you is, know, are robots dead? No, though? but the thing is, as yes. well, well, yeah, they're, they're not, not they're not divided. Unless, well, the thing is, like, what do you call um, algorithms are made by humans, so there is a division within them at some level. I would definitely not have sex with an algorithm. No, no, no. But the thing is, but th- there's a human imprint on a robot, you know. Um, because well, this <laughs> argument comes up a lot in sci-fi, right? About yeah, to what degree robots are like us. And I think that that's a central question here, because some people, when you say, would you have sex with a robot, they're imagining a sex doll, something that's totally lifeless. <laughs> some people are imagining, you know, like the kind of robot from Ex Machina or Her, something that seems conscious or, mm. or very nearly conscious. Yeah, or 2046. Joy. Right. Yeah. yeah. And some people are imagining something somewhere in between those poles, like uh, maybe the... Uh, I don't know, that robot from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or something. So so there are lots of different <laughs> kinds of robots. Yeah, but but they're not alive. But they're not living. There's no such how thing as a have, sexual How can you want to have sex with <laughs> <You> something? <know. laughs> no, people have sex with their eyes closed. They have they masturbate in the presence of someone else. 
<laughs> so let me ask you this. So if you were to have sex with a robot, would you rather have sex with a sex doll or with a robot that is highly animate and seems alive? You like Joy from 2049 rather than rather although in 2049 he has sex with a prostitute with the projection of joy on her. See, I, I mean, given that, that we're talking about tools and instruments, something that, that was more tool-like. I mean, I, d- I never use anything like that ever because I'm weirdly prudish and strange. No, but, I, no. <laughs> but, you know, it would be something that would remove it from the uncanny valley humanness. You know, I couldn't bear it. It would, it would make me feel so melancholic. It would be, it would be horrible. It that, would be horrible. That looks human, but that wasn't alive. I would like, I'd feel suicidal. I think everybody's going to agree that if you're, if it's in the middle between those two things, it's probably the least compelling case. <laughs> no, but okay, but but it, but someone, some a robot that was human, very human-like, would make me feel mm. suicidal. It would, it would, it would like. I, I, I couldn't. But I couldn't. Do you know? Do but this is the, there is a truth to this because this is the thing. Sex is not neutral, right? Sex, sex is traumatic. Sex when fantasy is not involved. The reason why it's experienced as rape is because it's highly traumatic. Because when you have not chosen or when you're not libidinally invested in the sex, and this is the thing you know about like rape culture and everything, and where, where the truth is in all of this is that like if you don't want the sex, it is it's really traumatic. It actually is. It's not a neutral thing, but. Do you know the thing is though? So when you were talking, Benjamin, about like, so Bella is like reconciling her 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 ultimate thing. She reconciles these two irreconcilable groups. Like, so the question of what does woman what what do women want? Freud unanswered. Maybe it's this. So to the hysteric, and again, like many men are hysteric. It's like this perpetual quest to undermine the master, to undermine like the. Um, well, there's all kinds of different discourse, but to, to understand, undermine, you know, my, my sister has a little kid, so cute. And um, she will say like to him, he's Spanish, so he has the most hilarious accent, like, who's a silly Billy? Papa, you know, so it's like this perpetual undermining of the man, you know, but then, but undermining for what, you know, you, you, you want a master and you will have one. You're, you're trying to undermine the master, but then, the, you know, a new one will always this search for the master signifier will always sort of become instigated again. But maybe it's like to reconcile. Maybe that the ultimate thing is. But the, to reconcile is impossible. The only reconcile... Uh, yeah, yeah. Isn't the sort of one of the Lacanian points about like women as mediation, you know, and the whole point about exogamy and this kind of thing is that women mediate between tribes. Like, so if Bella ends up mediating between the wolves and the vampires, that's, that's very, that's basic anthropology 101. That's exogamy. You swap the women with the different tribes and they become the the mediation right they they also are dip, diplomatic agents in a certain way you know because you 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 can't keep all the women in your tribe right because you end up with recursive genetic problems so you have to swap women out and but then they end up mediating and i i don't know i think women often play this role of mediating between men i feel like i always do this like two men are at, at war and i have to kind of like mediate often fruitlessly between them. <laughs> I'll often be the um, person who protects a man. If I feel like they're being unfairly, whatever, I will warn but them. But what about the other man? Is this protecting them from another man? or? Well, let's say my ex's work, you know, you'd always get some people who are slightly, you know, people are free to criticise and all this kind of stuff, but you get some people who would be have malevolent whatever, and he'll be like, oh, 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 and I'll be like, no, 
He said this. You can't take it. You know. He doesn't want your protection. No, he doesn't. I think he likes it. I think he likes it. I'm sure. I'm sure. That's very sweet. But I can't help but I can't help but but mother, even though I'm not a mother. No, I think this is also you know a thing. I mean, you know, like I I felt like I had to protect Alfie for like years. You know, when he was facing prison, I felt like I I felt like I was a shield actually. You know, which is a <laughs> No, no, honestly, yeah, like that I was like, trying, like literally yeah. trying, almost like physically trying to prevent him being taken away by the authorities, yeah. like, you know, yeah. all the time, which is unlivable feeling, yeah, yeah. <laughs> frankly. I mean, this is the, this is the horrendous, like, and thankless task of the mother is to yeah. shield, is to, it's impossible, you know. I think it can, it can be, it can drive you, well, it just drives, I'm sure having children is extremely stressful for this reason. You, it's an impossible task. You cannot protect them from everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Bella gets very upset at Jacob for imprinting on the newborn daughter because he immediately gives her a nickname because he envisions her entire future. Uh, in the moment in which he imprints on her and gives her a nickname which he thinks he thinks suits her her life path and one of one of bella's most upset lines in the film is you nickname my daughter <laughs> what's the nickname after the loch ness monster because he calls her nessie are you joking after the loch ness i'm not joking Jesus. yeah you nickname my daughter after the loch ness monster how did you sit through so because this, this one was like two hours and something right so it's far five yeah and what are they called? The they're first all one? they're all about that long. So New mm. Moon, which is is the Jacob heavy movie because Edward goes away and and she okay. seeks comfort in the arms of the werewolf Jacob, and then Eclipse. Does she have sex with with the werewolf? No. Oh, oh damn it! No. See, I'd watch it. She's for that. too pure. She's too. She wouldn't cheat. When <laughs> when the werewolf tries to kiss her, she punches him in the face. So you treat a treat a bad dog. So yeah. she does say. I'm taken. I can't go on a date with you. Although I thought she was very mean, you know, in the in the parking school parking lot at the beginning with the with the slightly the the tertiary guy, the Mister Nobody, who's like, "Oh, will you go to the prom with me?" And she's like, "Um, I've I'm busy that day." <laughs> it's like that's so mean. <laughs> no, but that's what I was trying to say about female sadism. Yeah. That the female. Um, Masochism or passivity to becomes female sadism when it can't articulate itself. So she can't say, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to, or I fancy another guy. She has to lie and say, I'm away, even though she obviously isn't by the end and she I does know, go to I the know. prom. All you so have to say, the guy is like, what happened to your trip? <laughs> all you have to say is like, I've, I've got a boyfriend where I'm not interested in a relationship right now. There you go, inoffensive. But it's very hard. This is, this is the point. It yeah. is very difficult. You know, because you, I, I, I don't know, it's a kind of perpetual problem. And I, I think it gets misinterpreted, you know, I like that any hope is a hope or, you know, if you don't flat out say, you know, because also it's a, if you want someone to be your friend and they're like, will you go out with me? And you're like, no, then the, then it's also mm -hmm. usually the end Absolutely. of the friendship Absolutely. and you don't necessarily want that, but it's it becomes impossible. Yeah. There seem to be two reasons, and they are often both operable at once. One is that the woman wants to avoid hurting the man to keep him as a friend. And the other is that the woman is somewhat afraid of what he might do yeah, if exactly. he's upset. Right? And those can be active at the same time, I think. Definitely. 
Yeah. It's very it's very unfortunate very for unfortunate. the men because the men would most men would be better off just knowing and then deciding what they want to do going forward on the basis of that information but because of the tiny minority of men who behave badly in that situation nobody gets to find out. <laughs> but it is true this the point you were making at the beginning you know about women's agency like women have and and also the sadism of masochism you know that the, the the dialectic of power and this sort of purity um Purity is a very bourgeois, very, um, mm. it, it, you know, and, and the, 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 the aesthetics of capitalism are to deny the messiness and reality of capitalism. It's all about repressing the contradiction. And so, you know, the purity, is, purity is never good unless, well, yeah, I don't think purity exists anyway, but, but that women have so much uh, sexual power it's quite terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I think it's terrifying for them. I mean, yeah. if you're a, you know, an attractive teenage girl or whatever, I mean, it's a nightmare mm -hmm. for you. I think, really, especially at that age when you you don't, you both have power, but you don't know how to wield it, and it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a problem. I mean, I, you know, it's it's like there've been these periodic crises, like in Britain, obviously around sexual behavior sexualized behavior in schools right we recently had a kind of moral panic about that you know and 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 it's like i was reading you know i keep reading back over my teenage diaries i'm reading them out to someone like day by day and i have them all since i was 13 like every single it's very strange to read them very they're very boring in a very interesting way um but there's so much about desire and you know fancying people and everyone's relationships and you know, and it's like if you put a load of teenagers together in a you know co-ed comprehensive school, like every school is like this. Of course, it's going to be like this. Mm -hmm. Like the boys lift up the girls' skirts, they try to touch them all the time, they try to kiss them. There's like, you know, the girls are also like, you know, they mature slightly earlier than boys, and they like fancy older boys, and you know, it's, it happens all the time. Unless you have single sex schools, you're never going to eradicate this thing. And turning it into a moral panic and accusing you know, teenage boys of basically being like rapists is, is also not a solution, right? This is also a terrible thing to do. You know, it's not to say that teenage boys can't behave badly, but to, you know, to try to some circum, I don't know, circumvent the question of teenage sexuality, which is completely mad and out of control mm -hmm. and all dominating for a lot of teenagers by somehow blaming boys is also not going to work, right? Absolutely. Blaming the individual is always a way of running away from structural. Problems. To allow the structure to continue. But, but you know, because we're so post-sexual revolution, because we're in the backlash against it, um, it, it almost, we're in a point at which we're almost denying the reality of sexual desire, particularly Absolutely. in teenagers. I think this is the, and, yeah, I think this is the, me, me too is not a reaction against past trauma. I think it's a reaction to the, the subjective trauma of today. Which is post-revolution sexual? It's the it's the unmanaged, um, unmanaged borderlessness of the whole thing. It, it was all you know. It, a lot of this this stuff, this activism, politics, and stuff. You know, you 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 break down a barrier, which a lot of things need to be changed. Obviously, a lot of past things have got better on many cultural different levels, but you just um, you just end you just open it up to the realm of the market if you do not always have a clear vision of what the market is and a universalist politics. If it's particularist, it can always be packaged as a commodity. Um, and I think, A, the terrain of sex is so obviously 
you know, within every crevice of the market system. But it's, it's, there's, we have sort of railroaded all understanding of it to this relativism that gives us no purchase on it. And I think a lot of girls at a certain point are completely traumatized about the reality of their sexuality or their sexual power. It is quite horrendous and many people react in many different ways. But it's interesting that Me Too didn't happen when, let's say, millennial women were teenagers, but it's happening now. And I think there's um, lots of different reasons for that. I think part of the trouble is that all revolutions are kind of bourgeois because all revolutions tear down existing systems without building replacements. And when you create a vacuum, the thing which tends to insert itself is the market. And that's why it's so difficult to have a revolution which produces anything better. You can just tear down something and then there's a void. And out of that void comes whatever it is that spills into vacuums, depending on the situation Mm -hmm. you're in, whether it's the market or competitive aristocratic nobles who fight each other for territory. It's always... It's always vacuum politics. That's what you get after revolutions. Vacuum. And the politics. ideology of promise is how capitalism operates. You know, you promise something that will close the gap of lack, will give you a sense of completeness, will be better. And so, yeah, this is exactly why um, a certain form of aesthetically left politics is always so quickly marketized because it is a promise. There is no promise beyond ordinary unhappiness, beyond division, beyond the living flower, beyond a sort of ordinary transcendence generated by the contradiction at the heart of everything. All right, so we're going to wrap up because we're at about an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. Please come and join us on the B-side for the rest of our episode today. That's going to be on Patreon at patreon.com slash thelackpodcast. Thank you guys so much for listening and indulging my desire to talk about twilight (laughs) i appreciate it Uh, and have a wonderful rest of the day bye bye